Well, good evening, uh, everyone. And uh, for those of you who are new, uh, my name is Jordan. I'm the assistant pastor here. I've been away for uh, about a month uh, in Canada, and it's good to be back here with uh, God's people uh, this evening. Now, our sermon text is taken from Zechariah chapter 12. So if you would turn in your Bible uh, to Zechariah chapter 12, um, I'll be looking at verses 1 to 9. Uh, this chapter, chapter 12, 13, and 14 are actually one section, um, but we'll just be focusing on these nine verses here. All right, Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. Uh, the Lord will give salvation is the heading. And this is the word of the Lord, it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch amongst sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David." And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Well, this is the word of the Lord. And uh, why don't we come before God? Let's ask for his spirit's help in understanding this passage and then applying it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, uh, we come again uh, tonight to the book of Zechariah. We do recognize, Lord, um, that there are some things in this passage that may, uh, at first glance, be difficult to understand. Uh, but, Lord, we come here tonight to gain understanding and a heart of wisdom. And we come here tonight to study your word that we might know exactly what it's saying and that we might live by it. And so we pray that your spirit would help us to understand what's been said here and that you uh, might apply it to our hearts and lives that we might go out as your people and live for Jesus in this world. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, um, I think some of you have probably been watching uh, the Women's World Cup. It's been, uh, there's been a few interesting games. Uh, I've enjoyed watching our Australian team, uh, the Matildas. Uh, they're a great team. As much as I love the Matildas, I, I don't think I'm ready to speak of what happened two weeks ago uh, against, uh, in the game between Canada and the Matildas. Uh, but I am prepared to talk about last night's game. If you were watching, it was a nail-biter. 
last night, night's game was clearly this uh, battle of two equally uh, matched opponents. And for nearly an hour, both sides defended themselves incredibly well, uh, leading to kind of this final shootout in the end where uh, Australia won. And I'm pretty proud of that. I'm not so happy about uh, Canada's loss, but I am happy uh, that Australia won. And we all watched the showdown last night. And tonight we come to another showdown here in this passage. We see a different kind of showdown. Now, just for a bit of context, and since we haven't been uh, in Zechariah for a while, let me give you uh, some of the background to this chapter. Um, in previous sermons, we've told you that the year was uh, the, the, the 586. And in 586, years before Christ was born, the Israelites said they were in a bad way. After King David died, the nations of Israel and Judah kind of slowly went into this uh, terrible, terrible descent into godlessness. And they became a godless nation. They stopped worshiping the true God, and they started worshiping what? Little idols, stone idols of wood and stone. They switched sides. They turned away from God, and they turned towards the gods of the nations. Not every single person did. Of course, we know men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel. Um, they stayed faithful, but as a nation, the vast majority of people turned away from God, and they turned towards godlessness. They wanted independence from God. And because of that, God said, have it your way. You want independence? You got it. Then, in the, then uh, uh, in the year 586, a war broke out. And Babylon, which was this massive world superpower, invaded Jerusalem. And because the people of Jerusalem wanted independence, God gave them independence and did not help them in that battle. And they lost. Uh, they lost everything. They lost their city, they lost their homes, they lost their temple. Some people lost their family members. Uh, and for 70 years, uh, they were forced to live in exile. They were taken into captivity. And then finally, after 70 years, they returned, which brings us to the book of Zechariah. And now, the people of Israel, they're back in the land, and they've, they have to rebuild. They have no king, they have no temple, and they are defenseless. Anyone could come in and attack them. And then God, seeing their pain, seeing their frustration, seeing their sadness, seeing their discouragement, he sends them a message, and he sends it through a messenger. Who's that messenger? Zechariah. It's the name of the book. And um, the message that he has here is that the war is not over. There will be more enemies, there will be more attacks, there will be uh, more times when Israel will be under pressure and under fire. Nations will still try to destroy God's people, but the good news of this chapter is that God wins. They needed to be reminded of that. God wins. And that's one of the major themes of this book. God wins. And so Zechariah sees a vision of a future showdown, not a soccer match, but a battle. 
And there are three short words that appear 16 times in these uh, three, last three chapters. What are those words? Three short words. On that day. On that day is repeated 16 times through these three chapters. And what Zechariah is about to tell us concerning this showdown is not what has happened in the past, not what is happening in the present, but what will happen in the future. On that future day, these things that he sees will happen. It concerns the future. In verse 3, he sees another war, another siege, and a coming day when what? What happens? What did we just read about? Uh, the nations of the world are gathered against God's people. All the nations, not just one nation or two nations or three nations. He sees in his vision all of the nations, Egypt, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all of the world's superpowers are gathered against God's people. And then on the other side of the battlefield, he sees Jerusalem. And during his day, Jerusalem was what? It was this, this weak, defenseless city that was slowly uh, rebuilding itself. It was a recovering city. It was a city that didn't even have a king. And so what he sees in this vision is he sees the nations versus Jerusalem. These are not equally matched opponents. This is not um, the Matildas versus France. I hate to say it, but it's more like the Matildas versus Canada. And, and yet we see that in this battle of unequally matched opponents, who comes out the, the victor? Who wins the battle? God's people win the battle in the end. Because why? God is on their side helping them. So I've entitled uh, the sermon, God Wins, for obvious reasons. Zechariah's message to the Jewish people is this. Whenever God's enemies attack God's people, God will help and God will win. It's simple. And as we look through this passage, we'll see three things. And you can see them on the, the slide there. We'll see, we'll see a winner. I'll point out to you the winner of this battle, the loser of this battle, and then the final outcome of this battle. Now, um, I'm sure that there might be some obscure things in the passage that you might have questions about. I can't cover everything um, that there is to say in this passage, but if you have a question about the passage afterwards, you can come find me and I'll direct you to Joel, and then he'll answer all of your questions because he's the Zechariah expert here. But there's a winner, there's a loser, and there's an outcome. And um, we see uh, the winner in verse 1. And we see a powerful winner. We see an infinitely powerful uh, winner in verse 1. A powerful God. And we see how he's described here. How is he described in verse 1? Well, uh, we are told that he, he stretches out the heavens, this God, the God of Israel. In other words, the skies, the stars, the nebulas, uh, the universe, the Milky Way, the, the asteroids, uh, the moon, the atmosphere, everything above us has been created by him and for him and is stretched out by him. That's what verse 1 says. You know, last April, uh, we had the chance to, it was a really great deal. Um, we, for a dollar a day, we could relocate a camper van uh, across Australia. So because I'm on a budget, we did it. And we drove across the Nullarbor 
And I've never seen stars like I've seen them in the Australian outback. It's just so amazing. And as you sit and look at the sky, you just see, you just see how powerful God is that he created this universe with, with all of the stars that hang from the sky. You know, on average, um, there are yeah, 100 to 4 billion stars in the universe. We don't know exactly how many they are, but that's the guess. 100 to 400 billion stars in the universe. And each, the average star, produces an equivalent of 10 billion hydrogen bombs per second. That's a lot of power. And so when Zechariah says, God has stretched out the skies with all their stars, we are reminded of how powerful uh, this God is. And God created, also verse 1 says, what? He laid the foundations of the earth, the earth that you're standing on right now. You know, it, it took the Israelites, not one, not two, it took them 20 years for the Israelites to build the, foundation, uh, build the temple and its foundation. When God laid the foundation of the earth, all he had to do was what? Speak. And it came into existence. And uh, just by the word of his power, six billion trillion tons of earth, I think that's accurate, six billion trillion tons of earth were formed. Seven continents, mountain peaks, 8,800 meters uh, of mountains, uh, ocean trenches of 11,000 meters. And not only did he create the heavens and the earth, obviously he created you and he created me. He knit you together in, in his mother's womb. So he's not just created uh, the vast universe, but he's also created the intricate de uh, details of the human body. He's created your DNA. He's created the atoms that hold you together. And look at verse 1. We're also told that he created the human soul, the human spirit. He didn't just create the physical part of this earth. He created the spiritual part of this earth too. So we're reminded, Zechariah starts by reminding us of the winner, of this powerful God who created all things and who sustains all things. He wants us to remember uh, that God is powerful enough to defeat uh, his enemies. And you know what's in incredible? This powerful God, you know, the creator of six billion trillion tons of earth, he came to us in the form of a baby. You have the most powerful being in the universe. Came to us, came down to this earth in the form of a baby. He became the most feeble among us. An infant child. And he came to save us. And just take a look at verse 8. I, it's going to seem obscure at first, but... Um, John Calvin, I was reading John Calvin, and I found this in John Calvin, so I'll share it with you. Look at verse 8. What does verse 8 tell us? It tells us that a day is coming when God will shield his people. And on that day, we are told that the feeblest among them, and that verb or that noun is in the singular, the, the feeblest person among them, will become like King David. And the house of David will be like God, 
and like the angel of the Lord going before them. So let me just break that down from you, for you. Uh, he's saying there in verse 8 that in the future, one day, a feeble king, a king like David, will be born, and he will be like God. In fact, he will be God, and he will be like the angel of the Lord, who, if you know anything about the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord is often identified as God in the Old Testament. Okay, so who could I be talking about? Any guesses? Jesus, yes, thank you. Sunday school answer, Jesus. We all know that the answer is Jesus. Jesus makes an appearance in this passage. That's amazing. Um, Jesus, Zechariah's telling us about Jesus. Now, Zechariah didn't know that his name would be Jesus, but it has to be Jesus. It has to be Jesus because, well, John Calvin says it's Jesus. The message here is that Jesus is the winner. He's the champion. He's the angel of the Lord that leads God's people into victory. He's the better Moses. He's the better Moses who defeats Pharaoh. He's the better Joshua who defeats Jericho. He's the better David who defeats Goliath. Jesus is the focal point of this passage. And that's, that's actually what we'll see throughout the next three chapters, that Jesus makes an appearance. In the, in the next chapter, we'll see this reference to uh, the crucifixion of Christ foreshadowed in Zechariah. And over the next three chapters, we'll see much more about Jesus. But what he's saying here is that Jesus, this coming king, will execute God's plan. And he will come down to earth, and he will lead God's people to victory. And if you read the New Testament, that's the entire story of the New Testament, the entire narrative, is that Jesus wins. And we see Jesus, he enters the scene in Mark's gospel and he goes into the wilderness and he is tempted by Satan and he defeats Satan. He wins. We see him uh, standing up against the winds and the waves and he, by the word of his power, he calms them. He wins. And we see him debating against the religious experts. And who wins the debate? Jesus wins. We see him uh, coming up against the powers of darkness in his ministry. And who wins? Jesus. And we see him hanging on a cross. And Satan, in that moment, thinks that he's won. But who wins? Jesus. We see him in a tomb. And then on the third day, we see that he wins, defeating the last and greatest enemy, death itself. And one day, he will return. Jesus will come back. And he will win, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Jesus is the promise and fulfillment of this prophecy. He wins, and God won through him. So God wins, and his victory was accomplished through Jesus. Okay, so... Who's come out uh, as the loser of this battle? Who is the loser of this battle? Well, we see that the, the nations lose, which is my second point. And really, the nations here represent God's enemies. Um, those people who are oppressing God's people, who are um, resisting God's rule, uh, the nations lose. And we see in, that in verses 2 to 9. Um, more specifically, two to six, actually. Zechariah sees a day when God's enemies will try 
to attack God's people, but on that day they will lose. Now, have you ever heard this expression? Um, we won by a landslide. Australia won by a landslide the other day. You've heard that expression before, right? Um, what does it mean? It means that the match was not close, was, was close. Or, sorry, it means that the match was not close. The Matildas won by a landslide. We all know that the expression does not mean that a literal landslide knocked out Canada. It's a metaphor. Sometimes in our language, we use these metaphors to explain things that we mean, to make a point. Like life is like a box of chocolates. You never know which one you're going to get. We all know that life isn't literally a box of chocolates. Or what about the expression, I'm going to explode? <laughs> you're not literally, physically going to explode. It's not like you're going to splatter all over the wall. You're just angry. We all know what these metaphors mean. It's common in prophetic literature for the prophets to use symbolic language. And in your text, you'll see four symbols. They're not the only four symbols, but they're the four symbols that I've found here in these verses. And um, these four symbols, I've narrowed them down to a glass of wine, a rock, an army, and a torch. And just to help you, I've put that up on the screen. A cup, a stone or a rock, an army, and a torch or some fire. And together, all of these symbols illustrate one main point. Again, the main point that I've already been making, God wins and his enemies lose. Let's just quickly look at the first symbol. There's a symbol of wine, and that's in verse 2. What does verse 2 say? It says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. He's talking about a cup of wine. Now, what happens when you drink a cup of wine? One cup, usually nothing. What about two glasses? What about three glasses? Four glasses? Five glasses? Your face starts getting flushed. You start feeling tipsy. Then you have another glass and you start stumbling and you get disoriented and we would say that you're drunk. And you get confused. And that's the image that Zechariah uses to describe his enemies in verse 2. He says they've drank too much, they've lost control, and now they're staggering. And he's making this comparison. You know, the more the drunkard drinks, the more confused and disoriented he gets. And, uh, and the comparison is this. The more God's enemies attack God's people, the more disoriented they will get, the more frustrated they, they will get. Uh, as they attack God's people, they will lose. That's the first illustration. That's the first point. The second symbol is making the exact same point. Again. Um, and now what's the symbol in verse 3 that is used here? A stone. A big old rock. What does uh, verse 3 says? It says, On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Now, I don't know what kind of stone he has in mind. Maybe Zechariah is thinking about the stones that were used to lay the foundation of the temple. Or perhaps Zechariah was thinking about this stone that's in the middle of a paddock, and people are trying to remove the stone and can't because it's too heavy. Whatever the case, he, he sees this stone, and um, 
and people are unable to move it. They're actually getting hurt as they try to move the stone. And so this stone uh, symbolizes the frustration of the nations. As they try and attack Jerusalem, they're, they're unable to do it. In fact, they're getting hurt themselves as they try to attack the people of God. Then there's a third symbol in verse 4. And he sees in verse 4, horsemen riding into the city. Oh, look at verse 4 with me, if you will. And we'll just read it together. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And so there's this, this picture of a military, of this army that's attacking Jerusalem. And what's happening to the horses? God is striking them blind. And he's striking the, the riders mad. And they're getting disoriented. And they're failing. And they're, they're starting to attack themselves. And ultimately, their plan to attack fails. Okay, so they lose. Again, where are we with the symbols? We've looked at the cup. We've looked at the stone. We've looked at the army. Now look at verse 6. On that day, it says, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left of all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And again, here's another pretty straightforward picture. You're out camping. You've got a stack of wood. You want to start a fire, what do you do? Well, you get out your lighter. Or if you're a redneck, you douse it in petrol and you get out the torch. And you light the thing on fire, right? And uh, in the ancient world, you want to do the same thing, but you don't have a butane torch, so what do you do? You take your, your actual torch and you light it. Or you take um, one of these blazing pots, a pot that has, is filled with hot coals, and you lay it on the fire so that the kindling starts crackling and eventually you have your fire. And uh, the pot itself survives, but all the wood underneath it is devoured. And so again, here's this picture. He's saying um, Jerusalem, God's people are like this pot and God's enemies are like the fire that are being devoured. And again, what's the message? God wins. Um, there's four symbols, I think, because perhaps, and now I'm speculating, but perhaps God's people needed to hear this message four times. And maybe they needed to hear this message over and over and over and over again to be reminded that God really will win and that um, his victory is, is certain and sure. So that's the symbol uh, that's the metaphor. You've got these four symbols, wine, an unmovable stone, an army, and a torch. God wins. His enemies lose. And that leads me to a third and final point. Um, what's the outcome? How does this apply to us? Well, there are three things here. Uh, three things that I think about this chapter. I found that this chapter is a bit confounding. Um, there, there's so much more that I could say. There are little bits and pieces that I could expound on a bit more. I just don't have the time to do that tonight. But at first glance, this 
passage is a bit confounding. And there are, there are parts of the Bible that are confounding, and there are parts of the Bible that are simple. I mean, you pick up Genesis 1-1, you read the first line, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? That's simple. Uh, you understand it. Um, you know what that means. But when we get to the prophets, sometimes we, we read these chapters, and we kind of are left scratching our heads. I'll admit that Zechariah is not the easiest book to understand. It requires a bit of research. It requires a bit of study. It requires a bit of hard work to understand it. And that's why I want to keep bringing you back uh, to the big picture here so that we don't get lost in the details. What's the big picture here? What's the message that Zechariah is delivering to God's people? God wins. And what a comforting message uh, that is for these people as they are in the midst, in the wake of great loss, as they are experiencing um, discouragement, as they are experiencing despair. What a comforting passage. What, um, what a comforting passage to us in the modern world. God wins. What a comforting passage for the persecuted church. You know, the nations today, um, very specific nations, are actively campaigning against Christianity. That's a fact. I'm not speculating here. And if you don't believe me, you can go to opendoors.com and it will tell you that in the world, one in seven Christians are persecuted. One in five Christians are persecuted in Africa. Two in five Christians are persecuted in Asia. 360 million Christians are experiencing high levels of persecution in the world because they have faith in Christ. You know, take everyone living in Australia, multiply that by 11. That's the number of Christians that are um, being persecuted for their faith. And you can imagine how hard it is we can't actually imagine how hard it is. We've never experienced this to that degree. How hard it is to be in those countries, to lose friends and family for the sake of Jesus, to lose even your home for the sake of Jesus, to, as a church, lose your church property for the sake of Jesus. You imagine uh, the government coming in and shutting down our church and taking away our building for no reason. Well, that's what people are facing around the world today. People have lost their freedom. People have even lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. And imagine we, me or Joel or one of the pastors here was to take this message to them to preach in a place like Nepal or Bhutan or North Korea. How encouraging would it be for them to know from the book of Zechariah, from this confounding chapter of the Bible, that God wins, that the nations that have been persecuting them, the persecuting powers, the, the Kim Jong-ils of the world, that they won't win as hard as they try. But God wins. And that the call, their call right now is to stay faithful, to keep persevering, because they know in the end that God will win, and He is winning as the gospel is preached. What a comforting message. What a comforting message for sinners like you and me to know that on the cross, God won. 
that Christ crushed Satan, that he defeated all the powers of darkness and dealt with our sin. Every time your sin condemns you, you can take a look at the cross and know God won. I am forgiven. I am a child of God because God won. What a comforting message for those who are fighting their sin. You, you know, maybe your tongue gets you in trouble. Maybe it's your thoughts. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe you have some other um, difficult problem that you're battling. God wins. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We need to remember that God's Spirit lives within us and is helping us as we fight against our sin. How else does this passage comfort you? Maybe it comforts you because you are discouraged. Maybe it comforts you because you are brokenhearted. Maybe it comforts you because you are anxious. Um, it comforts you because you know in your heart that God wins and that he is working all things together for your good, that his good plan for you will never fail. So this chapter is comforting, it's confounding, it's comforting, and it is also challenging. The very fact that God wins means that someone is going to lose. You can't say and pray, our Father who is in heaven, let your kingdom come, while at the same time working against his kingdom. That just doesn't work. I often think of that in Parliament. You know, in Parliament, they, they would pray the Lord's Prayer. I think they've gotten rid of it now, but they used to pray the Lord's Prayer in Parliament. And they'd, they'd, everyone would go into Parliament, and they'd have a time of prayer, and they'd say, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And then they would go and legislate laws that are contrary to God's kingdom. You can't, uh, you, you, you can't advance God's kingdom and advance your own kingdom. That just doesn't work. The fact that God wins means that someone's going to lose. And the loser, this chapter tells us, is who? Those who oppose God. Those who work against Him. And, and you know, we see that throughout the Bible. We see David and Goliath. Uh, who loses Goliath? Cain loses Pharaoh loses, Babylon loses, Persia loses, Judas lost. And whenever we oppose God, we will suffer some kind of loss. Sin always leaves us with baggage. Even if we reap a moment of pleasure, we will always reap a lifetime of baggage from our sin. Consequences. The white lie might turn into a web of lies, and that will have great consequences. Everything has its sin, always has its consequences. A bit of gossip, a moment of fun conversation can destroy a friendship. I don't need to give you a laundry list of examples. I'm sure you know of an example yourself. As, even as Christians, I know, I know that we, on the one hand, we do, obviously we know that we are forgiven and that we are saved and that Satan cannot condemn us. But as we live the Christian life, whenever we oppose God through sinfulness, isn't that counterproductive? You know, the other day I was at my daughter's basketball game, and there was this poor girl, she got the ball, she was dribbling it, and then she shot it into her own net. 
poor girl, she's quite embarrassed. Now, when we knowingly, as Christians, when we knowingly sin against God, it's like we're shooting the ball in the wrong net. It's counterproductive to God's kingdom. As God's servants, we should be building up God's kingdom, advancing God's kingdom, um, not tearing it down. And so, so we, as Christians, we, we really need to take that seriously. As we pray and as we live that out, our, thy kingdom come, not my kingdom, your kingdom, Lord. As we play for God's team, as we advance God's kingdom. And if we don't know God's grace, if we haven't, if you haven't experienced God's forgiveness, um, if your opposition to God is like that of, you know, Joseph Stalin, who on his deathbed raised his fist against God, then what? Well, Zechariah challenges us to think, to see the picture, to see the showdown between God and between the nations, to be reminded that this God who created the universe is not to be trifled with. And so he calls on us to call on him and to trust him. And in so trusting him, we will discover his graciousness and his mercy we will be able to say, as verse 5 says, that we have strength through the Lord of God, Lord of hosts, our God, that we are strengthened by Him. So He calls on us to call on Him and to find ourselves on the right side of history, to repent, to trust in Him, to join His side, to advance His kingdom, to follow His Son, and then He promises that as we persevere, will share in his victory. Let's pray. We are thankful, O Lord, that victory is, has been won through the finished work of Christ on the cross. We thank you, Lord, um, that you have called us into your kingdom, onto your team, uh, knowing that you will win and that you have won Lord, as we live the Christian life, give us that, that renewed confidence in you as we face each day, as we uh, struggle against temptation, as we face the various problems we go through in life, as we uh, suffer, as we experience doubt and despair and confusion. Lord, renew this message in our minds this week that you are the God who wins and that you fight for us and that you strengthen us in our weakness. So we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.